Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Thank you for being here. It is a wonderful day. What an incredible day it is. And you probably uh, saw it, but all day since this morning when the news broke, we have been uh, celebrating the next step in General Mike Flynn being free. You know, it's not over yet. There's still some, you know, wrangling to be done. But I have to say, the the fact that the Court of Appeals has ruled and said, yes, allow the dismissal of the charges against Mike Flynn, it's a huge victory. It's a huge victory. And it's a huge, I mean, it's just a great thing for America, but it's also just wonderful from a personal standpoint. The guy's been going through unbelievable, lengthy torture, uh, having to try to put, put up with this three and a half years. Three and a half years. So anyway, welcome. Let me start again. Welcome with you. It's Ed Martin. It's great to be here with the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Check out everything there. You can get on the wink. What you need to know daily email comes out at 5 a.m. 5 a.m. Pacific time, 8 a.m. East Coast time. Bam, right in your inbox. People are telling me. They keep sending me emails. They love getting it. You get a couple of key articles. You get what you need to know from this radio program and a few other things. So sign up there at ProAmericaReport.com. Get signed in, locked in. You'll see. But let's get to the big news. There's other things around. You know, I'm going to talk later on in the show about the president's commitment to sign an executive order uh, regarding the monuments and the threats to monuments. And I'm very, very pleased. Um, I'm really, uh, really excited, very grateful that the president's doing this. And so we are, um, I'm going to tell you about that. He's going to sign an executive order that says, hey, cut it out, leave the monuments alone. It's personal for me because my board chairman and my friend, uh, Helen Marie Taylor, cares about it. So you want to hear that segment. That's going to be the last segment of the show today. Tune in for that. It's a big news. Another one I want to talk about, I think I'll do it tomorrow too, but it's this one. Social media is uh, banning, not just uh, shadow banning, not just slowing it down. They're actually just banning the accounts of conservatives and two of the more professional conservatives. There's lots of conservatives that are just loud and wild and not professional, which you don't have to be professional to be on Twitter. I'm not complaining. I'm just describing. But two of the best pros are Carpe Donctum and... Uh, uh, Raheem Kassam. Carpe Donctum is a meme maker, a professional meme maker, unbelievably talented. He does an unbelievable job. And Raheem Kassam is a professional communications expert and a journalist. And, a, you know, and a, so they got banned. And you have to say to yourself, they didn't really break any rules. They just didn't. They, that's not who they are, even especially Carpe Dantum. When Carpe gets dinged, like if he does a meme and he uses footage from somebody else, you know, there's a fair use. Uh, um, there's a fair use standard that you're allowed to use some some things. If somebody runs a uh, if, if Don Lemon does a segment on CNN, you can use bits and pieces of it. You just can't use the whole thing. You can't take away the whole value of something. But there's a fair use doctrine. And when it comes to satire and artwork, 
there's real protection for using something and making it satire. Think or artwork. Think about um, the best example right off the top of my head that you'll say, oh, yeah, I got it, is uh, when Andy Warhol used all those uh, Campbell's soup uh, cans. He, he was using them as art. Well, you, would Campbell's soup could sue him and say, no, it was artwork. And Carpe Donctum, when he did get, when someone did complain and they'd say, oh, you're using a song or something you shouldn't be allowed to, he complied. He's a pro. He's a professional, uh, but you know what he is? He's a conservative. Raheem Kassam has written uh, books. He's written, he's edited magazines. He's edited websites. He's been a spokesman. He's been a, at the highest levels, he's a broadcaster. Highest levels, he's a pro. They say he's the breaking the rules now. I don't think so. I'm telling you, it's a big story, but that's, that's not the, the story. What you need to know today is General Flynn is this close to free. He's this close to being out from under it all. Unbelievable breakthrough today. The Court of Appeals said basically, hey, judge, you can't say you're going to keep a case going when the prosecutor says I want to dismiss and the defendant says me too. You don't get to say, I want to keep it going. It's a huge breakthrough. Now, we got to, there's a little bit of a crack here that the, the Court of Appeals can be um, appealed to by the, the judge, I guess. And the whole Court of Appeals, which is like 20 judges, could uh, address it, what's called en banc. So at the very least, you probably have time has to pass a few days for that to happen. But I'll tell you this. If there's any significant delay now, it will be the proof that this judge is playing politics, Sullivan. I mean, I think he has been, but I don't have proof of that. I can't, I can't read his mind. But if he delays now, then we know he really is just playing for the political teams now and that one of the teams. So, um, but that's not even the big news. General Flynn getting almost free is big. General Flynn going earlier today on Rush Limbaugh and saying thank you to his, his, his thank you to the many fans and supporters, and then saying this. America is so great. It's General Flynn. I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, summarizing what he said. I'm, I'm remembering it from what uh, he told me. He told me he was going to go on. He said basically this. Uh, America's great experiment. Unbelievable in history. But you got to fight for it. And the fight never stops to protect it, to make it right, to keep it going. And Flynn basically said that. And I'm telling you right now, you know why? Because he's ready to fight. When he gets out of these shackles, of this process. I had someone said about this whole thing. The process is the punishment is what they said. That's right. The process has been the punishment three and a half years. His shackles are coming off and his gloves are coming off. This guy is coming and he's going to be coming hard and you're going to see it. It's going to be extraordinary to see. So that's going to be big news. So what you need to know, Flynn is almost free. What you need to know is Flynn's coming to fight. And here's what else you need to know. Late yesterday, it's now been lost in the stories. No media is covering it really. Peter Strzok, the FBI agent who's been, you know, sort of, uh, he, he's, he's, is he fired or did he quit? He might have quit before he's fired, but anyways, he's out. His handwritten notes from the meeting, Strzok, Sally Yates, Comey, Joe Biden, and Obama, in a meeting in the White House, January 4th, 2017. I think that's the right date. But with the handwritten notes of Peter Strzok, he says, we're talking about how there's not much on Flint somehow. I'm, I'm summarizing again. I'm, I'm kind of guessing my memory here. But I do know that he said this. Uh, the suggestion from Joe Biden was use the Logan Act on Flynn. And then, uh, and then and handwritten notes of Peter Strzok. Obama says, you know what, what we should do? We should definitely, we should definitely make sure the right people are on this. Put the right people on this, he tells Comey or tells Yates. I, you can't trust Peter Strzok's notes to be the whole truth, 
But you have to say that they are a contemporaneous expression of what he thought he heard. And what he thought he heard, it sounds like, is the president of the United States and the vice president directing their Department of Justice to, to further the effort, what do you call it, to take out General Flynn. I suppose these two were sitting there and they're thinking, well, we we know uh, he's done this other thing or something. But it sounds like they're saying find a crime. Remember the famous Soviet maxim, one of the great Soviet, not great, one of the terrible, evil Soviet prosecutor, you know, enforcement type said, show me the man, I'll show you the crime. Meaning they could always pin a crime on somebody. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like abuse of the office, like we I don't know, worried about, wondered about, always thought was there. And I got to tell you, when this thing stops spinning, I just have to think that the uh, the um, uh, that there is a monstrous likelihood that somebody like Susan Yates, excuse me, Susan Rice is in the middle of it. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And uh, and we will. um We'll see what happens uh, now, but it's a, it's a great day. So that's what you need to know. It's an amazing day. Congratulations to General Flynn. He's a good man with a good family, and he is uh, he's somebody that deserves to get out from under this. So we'll see. There's still a few, few more details and days to follow, uh, but I think we can be optimistic. So it will be um, interesting to see uh, what else uh, is coming, but uh, it's going to be great to see, too. So, all right, that's what you need to know on that, and uh, we will take a break. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com, and get signed up for the Daily wink you'll get more of these things i'll post some of these articles up there uh there was a um a nice uh a tweet and and, the, and i know Sidney powell is i hope getting enough credit now extraordinary lawyer going to bat for um uh for um the effort and uh and really amazing uh, just for the truth and goodness and i hope she gets enough credit in the short term in the long run history will be kind to Sidney powell the great Sidney powell so she is really something special an american treasure so we'll take a break and be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report be back in a moment. this is the pro america report on the answer san diego Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. You know, one of my favorite, um, you all know I love talking to, well, there's a couple, a couple groups I love to talk to. I love to talk to authors about their books, but I really do enjoy, and I think it's very valuable when you get really smart folks who understand how things work uh, and, they, and they debunk the media. Many years ago, I started a website. It didn't last long because it's hard work, and it was called the postdispatchedED.com, and it was just aimed at going through the post St. Louis Post-Dispatch, my hometown paper, and saying, what are they lying about here? What are they lying about there? And it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work, though. So our, ne- our next guest is uh, James Taylor, who's the president of the Heartland Institute. And you go to heartland.org, and you'll see a lot of their great stuff across the board. But in spe- specifically, he's got a piece up uh, called, it's on climaterealism.com, which sort of debunks, but that's not, the word there, debunk, seems like it's a value statement. What it does is breaks down what you're seeing about arguments about climate change and the environment and gives you the, the, the underlying 
underlying you know, backstory. So it's not always like this is bunk, although it often is. It's more like, hey, understand what they're doing and trying to trick you into this. Well, the piece that I'm looking at that he is posted just um, a few days ago is called it's the title is New York Times debunked climate change not tied to pregnancy risks. And I think this is a great one because nothing scares people more. Trust me, father of four kids, you know, that someone says something's at pregnancy risk. You're like, oh, my gosh. So anyway, first of all, welcome, uh, James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute. How are you, sir? Oh, doing well. Thanks for having me on. And yes, you are right. This work never ends. <laughs> There's quite a bit to the <laughs> Yeah, it is. So walk us through. First of all, what did the New York Times assert? And then walk us through your debunking, because it's a great one. Well, the New York Times published an article claiming that, well, here's their title, Climate Change Tied to Pregnancy Risks Affecting Black Mothers Most. Well, let's let's ignore the race issue for this uh, the purpose of this conversation. Climate Change Tied to Pregnancy Risks. And what the New York Times did is they wrote an article about a climate activist. He's on the board of directors for a group called the Climate Action Campaign. Its main funders uh-huh. are the solar and wind power industries. So these are not objective okay. people. These are not objective scientists. So this, this environmental activist, climate activist, what he did is he self-selected several studies regarding pregnancy and having various factors. And, of course, when he's choosing the studies, he's choosing it because he has a financial and ideological self-interest in finding alarmism, finding a problem. Because, after all, he's with a climate action campaign funded by people who want to say we need to do something about climate change. So he took several of these studies. And what he claimed is that when he teased out the data, he found that if temperatures rise 5.6 degrees Celsius, that the risk of a premature birth rises by 11%. Now, that's one of the two findings. Let's, let's, let's jump into that. Since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, global temperatures have only risen one degree Celsius. He's saying you need to get to 5.6 degrees Celsius to find an 11.6% increase in premature births. By the way, 11.6% is so small, it fits within the background noise. In a statistical study, medical doctors, scientists would say, we can't tease that out. It's too small to actually say there's a correlation. And that would be we would have to see five times as much warming as we currently have. So in other words, it means nothing, even if we believe that he was objective in selecting his studies and that he characterized their findings correctly. Second, he claimed uh, that for every temperature increase of one degree Celsius during the summer months, there is a 6% increase in the likelihood of stillbirth. Now, again, 6% is essentially background noise. But let's say, well, this is a serious issue, stillbirth. So even at 6%, perhaps we should be very careful. But here's the thing. What he did not do is show any data regarding during the cold months and colder temperatures. Now, scientists have shown that cold temperatures, this was was shown by scientists in a peer-reviewed study, cold temperatures kill 20 times more people than warmer hot temperatures. So you can say that there's a very small increase in stillbirth when you have an increase in the hottest of summer days. But global warming also eliminates the very coldest of cold days. And we know that for all uh, health impacts combined, that's a bigger problem than summer temperatures. So in other words, what we have is a study that tells us nothing from a biased source with no verification of its, uh, of its, uh, of its standards. And the New York Times says this is a huge story with the headline, Climate Change Tied to Pregnancy Risk. So this is a type of thing at Climate Realism. Every day we are debunking these climate scares of the day in the media. 
You know, and, and we're talking with uh, we're talking with uh, James Taylor, uh, the president of the Heartland Institute. It, what's the response? I mean, and I don't mean this the wrong way. New York Times probably just ignores anybody that, that, that disagrees with them. But do you get um, um, citizens and and others who jump in and try to say, "Oh no, no, you're you're misunderstanding the times," or does is just the you know? In, on one level, I kind of think the response is always, "Well, we say it authoritatively with our New York Times masthead and our big you know names, and then we just ignore everybody else and the." public swallows and but are you able to because part of the reason to debunk uh, or to not debunk but to uh to create a website like climaterealism.com uh is to get the get the heat going on it so you can sort of show people what's going on do they respond does the left join you in the fight or is it just sort of keep using the house organ of the new york times to mis spread mistruths well there's two prongs to this uh the media and the folks uh, who pretend to be uh, objective academics on this topic, they will, pretend, they, they will pretend that this analysis does not exist. Uh, they will do their best to not mention it. They'll do their best to convince people that there is no such discussion or debate, even when we present actual factual data. And that's, so that's one prong. The other prong is when people read the article here on climate realism, or it's called to their attention perhaps by colleagues or family, if they are members, if they are from the left, once in a great while, I might have somebody try to make an academic argument against it. But more right. likely, much more likely, I get emails calling me a rat, <laughs> calling me a shill, hoping that I get uh, locked up in a prison someday, uh, et cetera. And it's really a shame because when we're talking about issues of science, this shouldn't be something that uh, we throw hate at each other. We should have an open mind. We reach our conclusions. If someone disagrees, fine. But let's look at the science. And if somebody performs a scientific method, because a scientific method requires not only challenging our own theories, but inviting others to do the same. So if somebody performs a scientific method and scrutinizes scientific claims, they should not be vilified for doing so. It is um, no, I think that's right. I mean, the, the, the one of the one of the things though that I observe is, and again, we're we're, we're talking uh, about the website climaterealism.com, and and our uh, the author of this uh, post and our, our the person we're speaking to is James Taylor, president of Heartland Institute. Yeah, the 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 thing that is frustrating to me is it's it's become more um, obvious that. They don't really want to engage, you know, in the discourse. In other words, the New York Times drops something. When you debunk it, they don't care to. They certainly don't correct it, and they don't care to engage. And so they they uh, go now. I mean, but, but, but a different question on this. Climaterealism.com is this website where there's so much information talking to, to put shining a bright light on this. It feels like the the climate change movement the environmental the green movement has sort of lost momentum partly trump's policies i think have said hey let's be energy independent i think that's helped but partly the extremism of people like aoc and others albeit now they're part of the mainstream of the democratic uh, you know presidential campaign but in the public have has it lost energy or is it is it um are young people still falling for it? what's your sense about that whole fight well, it's hard to say. It, it's still uh, an uphill battle. Uh, in some ways, it's even more so than in the past, because five years ago, an article like that, the New York Times reporter would call people who are more climate realists, who are not just buying into the climate alarmism without checking it, and they'd say, here's what, uh, the, here's what the study says or our interpretation. Give us your take. And they'd at least, even if it was just one sentence out of 20 paragraphs, at least it would be in there. Uh, now they never do that because they are taught that climate alarmism, uh, the climate emergency, 
is an established factor like gravity. Also in the schools, uh, now you have a very concerted effort to do the same thing, to teach that we are causing a climate crisis and not present any facts or data or opinion otherwise. So a prediction about what the climate is going to do in the future uh, becomes known as, quote, settled science or scientific fact. And it's simply impossible to designate climate alarmism predictions as scientific fact, especially when we've debunked so many of them uh, that have been claimed will happen by dates certain prior to today and have not happened. So it's very difficult. On the other hand, the American people are intelligent. And even if we're getting shadow banned by the New York Times and elsewhere, uh, programs like yours, websites like Climate Realism, uh, get information to the people around the establishment media. And I'm optimistic that uh, so long as American people have access to the facts, uh, then the truth will prevail. It is interesting. It's. I think you're right, and I think one of the things, one of the lessons, and uh, lessons about sort of teaching in this sphere is just got to keep doing it. And the hard part, and that's a good thing about the Heartland Institute, by the way, of which you're the president. I know you believe in. It's been around a while, a long while, and it's been really good about uh, continuing to teach. And that's a uh, that's a big part of just getting hanging in there. Uh, we'll make sure to keep an eye on climaterealism.com. Thank you, James Taylor, president of the Heartland Institute. Uh, Heartland Institute. Um, excuse me, Heartland.org is their website, and we'll. We'll put it all up on social media, and we'll be in touch again, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day. We'll take a quick break and come back. Uh, don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com. You can find all these segments we're doing as standalones. You can listen to them, uh, pass them on to other people, and you can track me down at Eagle Ed Martin on uh, Twitter. We'll take a break. Be right back. Ed Martin, ProAmerica Report. This is the ProAmerica Report on The Answer, San Diego. <laughs> Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. It's, um, I, I saw this story. I'm looking to make sure that I say the, the date right on when I read this, noticed this. Um, um, it's this story. This issue is uh, a few. The story was written. The post was written a few months ago, not a few months ago, maybe a month, month ago. And I flagged it and I thought I need to go back and talk to Michael Petrelli about this because he's the president of the Fordham Institute. He's been on this program before. He's a research fellow over at uh, Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's um, done a whole bunch of stuff and, and he writes a lot in the you'll see him in all the all the sort of big league uh, outfits because he's really smart and they don't mind that he's saying things that sometimes make him uncomfortable. New York Times, Washington Post, because he's really smart and he's got a lot of experience. So this piece is about what makes um, it, the title is what you make depends on where you live, just not whether you go to not just whether you go to college or whether you went to college. So first, welcome back, Michael. How are you? Hey, it's great to be back with you, Ed. So the I, I, reason I flagged this was because um, recently with the attention of the of the sort of violence and the rioting and things, everybody says, oh, wow, look at how uh, how bad certain um, you know things are. Or what We're talking about racism and all. And I keep thinking to myself, some of this is coming from people who are in our country that are angry because of where they're stuck. They're stuck in a system that doesn't seem to work, whether the schools aren't good enough, where they are, you know, they're trapped, whether the opportunities aren't good enough. And it's not necessarily only there may be a race component, but it's not only race. What? what What's your observation when you watch these, uh, the sort of where the violence is taking place and how it feels in terms of what I just described? Yeah, you know, I, I think what we are seeing is that a lot of the tension in our country right now is in these big metropolitan areas. Uh, and, you know, I wrote about this in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago that, 
when we talk about income inequality, for example, if this is partly about economics, it, that, that inequality is now increasing in big cities and big metro areas more so than anywhere else. You know, so after 2016, there was a lot of focus on, on Trump country, small towns, smaller uh, metropolitan areas out there. Uh, and uh, it turns out that those places haven't been changing as fast. Uh, the real change has been happening in big metro areas, like where I now live in uh, Washington, D.C., New York, San Francisco. These are places where that economic divide is getting enormous. Uh, and we see this in the study that we did. Uh, what, what you're looking at is that college-educated workers are seeing their pay go up, 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 up. Uh, but, uh, you know, working class folks, the, the folks that are providing the services, uh, they are stuck. They don't see their wages rising as much. And yet the housing costs, the other costs of living in these metro areas are sky high. And so the people that really have it tough today are those people living in those big metro areas who don't have the higher education, uh, you know, who don't have the same opportunities and where the middle class really has been hollowed out, where there's just not that many jobs in between the sort of low-wage service sector jobs and these high-wage college-educated professional jobs. But here's the thing, Ed. That is not how most of America looks. Uh, in most of America, you still do have a broad middle class. You still do have these middle-skilled jobs in manufacturing and oil and gas and healthcare and lots of other areas where people can do quite well even if they don't have a four-year degree. Usually take some kind of higher education, a trade uh, credential, uh, technical uh, degree, maybe two-year degree or a one-year program. So it takes something, but it doesn't necessarily take that four-year degree like it does in those big metro areas. And, and outside these big metro areas, we are not seeing as much conflict right now, maybe in part because the middle, especially the middle class, is still holding. Is is the um, – so – I, I want to simplify because I'm a simpleton. I'm just kidding. But I, I, we're talk, when we talk about this, I want to say something like uh, we're talking. We're talking with Michael Petrilli, and, and um, we're talking about a piece he wrote on on G- where you live and how it impacts it. But it is is education at the heart of it? I know that's one of your backgrounds too. But is I mean, is it is it education? I know I know it's not college necessarily. In other words, you, you people, if you go to college, and it's the wrong degree, or you're not necessarily cut out for college. But it feels like in the places where our our public schools have been particularly failing, it's really sort of got people stuck more. Am I am I overthinking it because that's what I want to see? No, no. Look, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, here's the deal: no matter where you are. We need our K-12 education system to do a whole lot better. Uh, and, yes, it is particularly abysmal in the big cities. It has been for a long time, uh, though kids lucky enough to go to the public charter schools and some of the private schools via vouchers tend to do much better. And, and that's been a, a, an important lifeline to a lot of people in, in recent years. But, yeah, look, it, you know, if, if you live in a big city uh, and you really have to get that college degree in order to make a decent living and be able to afford to live there, then you need to be able to attend a school that's going to get you ready for college. And most most schools are not doing that. You know, after 13 years, kids are coming out of high school, uh, you know, with, with very low levels of skills in too, too many cases. And so they end up doing the minimum wage job. Uh, and not surprisingly frustrated by that. Uh, look, in, in other places, there are more options, and, and there should be more options. And yet, you know, we still keep pushing most kids in America into that college prep track. But, you know, outside the big cities, uh, if 
if you can do well with, with uh, the middle skill jobs, with, again, the trades, the technical degrees, uh, you know, we should be encouraging young people when they are still in high school to consider getting started on that path. Yeah, most high schools in America don't do that. We, we still push all kids into the traditional college prep programs. You know, the, the programs that are technical and career oriented are tiny. You know, it's maybe two or three percent of the kids that are going through those pathways. We do barely any apprenticeships. We do barely any of that kind of stuff that you see in other countries where we allow young people to get started on careers. And that all's got to change. Hey, we're talking with uh, Michael Petrelli and Michael's um, uh, the uh, president of the Fordham Institute. So in this time of the crisis, right, where all these schools closed down, I mean, we have an incredible number of private schools that are closing and not to reopen. And I live in northern Virginia now, uh, Michael, and, and Fairfax County Schools, one of the bigger school districts in the area, in the country, just announced that there's their fall. In the fall, you have three choices, virtual, half virtual or partly virtual. I don't know. It's it's and they're they can't really handle social distancing because the schools are too big and it's a mess and um what did we what are we learning i mean what could the what's the future uh as we're looking at that i'm again i'm I'm back to i'm still on education i know you were you worked in the department of education so i'm not i'm not out of your field but i feel like i'm going back to that but what are we what's our future of education and if, if our public schools are failing and a bunch of our private schools are closing and you know what do you think Yeah. Now, look, this is a tough period. Uh, And, uh, you know, here's hoping and praying that that there's going to be a vaccine soon so we can get all this behind us because it's going to be brutal. You know, like like you say, but what you see there in Fairfax County, Northern Virginia, you're going to see all over the country, uh, which is that kids are not going to be allowed to come to school every day uh, because they need to be able to socially distant from one another. (laughs) See how that works with little kids uh, and even high school kids. I mean, you know, you know, kids, they're going to be all over each other. It's going to be a huge challenge. And yeah, the, the the private schools are facing enormous challenges because you know parents are getting hit financially, uh, and if the private schools are saying that well it's it's going to be half the time online, parents are going to rethink sending in that tuition check. The Catholic schools that they're not getting the collections from the pews because churches have been closed. I mean, this is a huge huge challenge. I, I do think as you know, once we get through this difficult period. Uh, you know, my hope is that we're going to see some positive things come out. We, we are going to be more open to innovation in our education system, including allowing for more learning to happen at home. You know, there's no reason that we need every high school kid in America to be going to school uh, six or seven hours a day, five days a week when, you know, right. they do that as a 12th grader and then they go to college. And, you know, the full load is two or three hours a day, and they're expecting to do a lot more work independently. We could yeah. be doing more of that in high school. Yeah, I think that's uh, this is going to really make you smile. But I think, uh, and and again, I, and this is this is why you're the president of the Fordham Institute, and I'm uh, I'm not. But you know, when I see that they can finally have outdoor dining at a bunch of restaurants that probably should have always had that, because in where I live, the, again, the county's not enforcing the old regulations. Just go ahead, you're going to have picnic tables. Go ahead, eat outside. Okay, we're doing. And I think to myself, we we're going to rethink a lot of different things. I mean, you know, we're going to like you said, we're going to rethink yeah. education. We're going to think the schedule. You know, Notre Dame, uh, the University of Notre Dame, has led the country. I think, in, in saying we're going to go to school early in August and finish at Thanksgiving. And that's the first we've heard in a long time of totally changing the schedule, right? So a bunch of stuff is going to be able to be rethought, including in the economy. And so in that way, it's exciting. Uh, but some of the numbers on uh, on how hard it is is not uh, easy. So, uh, Michael, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go. Uh, Michael Petrelli, it's always good to talk to you. The president of the Fordham Institute, and that is FordhamInstitute.org. You can go there, and I'll also put up this uh, recent, oh, it's not too recent, a month or so ago, uh, 
uh, essay that he's got. Uh, they call it a flypaper uh, about uh, where you live and how it impacts you and different things. It's a thoughtful piece and a thoughtful place to go. So thanks for the time, Michael. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ed. All right, we'll take a quick break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, a national volunteer organization founded by Phyllis Schlafly and continuing to uphold her legacy by honoring family values, opposing radical feminism, and representing a conservative perspective in our nation's capital. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Feminists pushing for the ratification of the phony Equal Rights Amendment want you to believe that their proposed amendment to the U.S. Constitution is just a simple declaration that women should not be treated as second-class citizens. In reality, the ERA would mandate abortion on demand at taxpayer expense and nationwide. It would push the transgender agenda to get men and boys into women and girls sports. The feminists want to hide this Trojan horse from the American people behind a mantra of equality. They are no strangers to masking the truth to make themselves look good. The whole image of their so-called movement is built on the idea of women liberating themselves from a phony male patriarchy that wants to keep all women down. In reality, their movement is a movement of high-paid lobbyists fighting to make a quick buck off a dead issue. The American people soundly rejected the Equal Rights Amendment when Phyllis Schlafly defeated it in 1979. Congress had put a deadline on the amendment's ratification process because they didn't want a partially ratified amendment loitering around American jurisprudence for decades. Congress tried to extend the deadline, but no new states even bothered to ratify. Whether you believe in the extension or not, it became totally clear in 1982 that ERA was dead and buried. If you don't believe me... Look to the poster women of feminism. They agree. Ruth Bader Ginsburg said in an interview just a few months ago that she'd love to see ERA passed, but that it would have to start over. Gloria Steinem was probably the biggest feminist behind the ERA, but even she admitted on Oprah that they'd have to start the ratification process over. If this isn't proof, I don't know what is. Americans need to stop wasting time on these lobbyists and their pet causes. Women have complete equality under our present U.S. Constitution. They don't need phony equality that will make life so much harder for American women. I never thought I'd say this, but we need to listen to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Gloria Steinem. The Equal Rights Amendment is very thoroughly dead. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. You've seen the desperation of women's marches, the disgrace of Planned Parenthood, the rise of savvy young conservative women, Radical feminism is heading down a dead-end road. Voice your opinion on what's really important to women at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome, welcome back. It's Ed Martin here in a Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. This is a very important topic. I'm glad to talk about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming out because I've checked on this earlier today. The President of the United States uh, said yesterday that he's going to issue an executive order to protect the monuments. You know, all the different monuments he was doing. He did an interview. I think it was a stand up interview as he was leaving the White House. And he said he's going to do an executive order to pretend the monuments that are coming under scrutiny. He's been um, he's been very clear about this um, and that he opposes the removal of these uh, statues. He thinks it's all a crazy thing and he's working on it. 
I checked with the White House earlier today. I asked about this because it was yesterday that he said this, and they, I was told they're still working on it. Getting it exactly right. But there's a lot of the statutes, excuse me, a lot of the statutes and a lot of the areas which are within federal control and the rules have to be complied with. And so I checked in. They're going to do this. I think it's a really good idea that the president does this, just like they were trying to topple the Andrew Jackson statue in Lafayette Square in front of the White House. Across the country, they're doing this and they're completely out of control. And no one can tell me that this is what the American people want. They're not, it's not the American people that want this. It's a small group of people who don't like America. And, they're, and whether they're funded by foreigners, I don't know. But they're certainly Antifa and Black Lives Matter. They're not people that are respecting the nation and the people. And I, I, I am loath to agree or admit to anyone that a large portion of Americans think this is a good idea. And most Americans now see how far they'll go. This is not about one set of people. It's about one set of histor- histor- one part of history. They, George Washington was toppled. St. Juniper Sarah, the saint in California, was toppled. Statues. It doesn't matter. And I'm reminded of my friend, and, and know her so well, the Honorable Helen Marie Taylor, who is down in Richmond. She lives on Monument Avenue. And she did an interview with the Washington Post. And one of the things she said, a lot of things in the interview about what these people were doing, these these gangs, and they had vandalized her home. She lives right there in Monument Avenue uh, near the Jefferson Davis uh, statue. And but more than anything, the thing I, I she did was she took out her history book and she read the speech of the man who was at the dedication of the Robert E. Lee statue. Okay, so there was a Robert, there is a Robert E. Lee statue uh, on Monument Avenue, and at the dedication over a hundred years ago, there was at the dedication one of Robert E. Lee's secretaries of the uh, of during the war. So the man probably was a young man in the 1860s, and by the time it's uh, probably 1890 something, maybe he he is now uh, an older man, and he's present. Uh, Robert E. Lee is is deceased, and he is there, and he's reading. He gives a speech, and he says, and I'm I'm summarizing it, but I, it, but the reality is he he gives a speech, and he says about this question. He's talking about why dedicate something to Lee and and and, and Helen Marie Taylor uh, goes and, and reads this text. I'm trying to make sure that I get it as, as close as I can uh, to exactly what he said, because it was so well said. He was talking. It's not a monument to uh, secession. It's not a monument to uh, disunion. In fact, it's a monument to the union, which is Robert E. Lee. After the war, he was a, 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 a citizen like the rest of the country, and he came together. And the point here is you don't get to go back in history and rewrite the history and tell people uh, and lie to people about what the here it is. Here it is. Here's the quote. Charles Marshall is his name. He was Lee's military secretary. He said, quote, this statue will perpetuate no memory of infidelity to the union as it was and will teach no lessons inconsistent with a loyal and cheerful obedience to the authority of the union as it is. End quote. And Helen Marie said, that's pretty noble. Here's the reality. If we're going to take down every statue of every person who we decide is a flawed person, well, Martin Luther King Jr., the record now shows, was a, a very, very uncharitable to his wife. He was dishonorable to his vows, right? Is this the standard? In fact, the standard isn't that. The standard is how we mark the history and respect the goodness of what happened and learn from it. And, and learn from it. That's the point. 
And so uh, the president needs to step in, not only because we need an executive order protecting, but we need to change the storyline, the narrative that the small number of people, the angry people that are uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter, they're vandals. They're not protesters. They're vandals. And they're trying to destroy our culture instead of making an argument about our future. I'm open to an argument about our future. How do we do better? How do we treat people better? I'd, I'd say get rid of the government-run schools in Democrat cities across America would help our kids. But I'm open to what the argument is about the future. But don't erase our past. And I'll just finish with this. We had a guy come by my house who was raised in communism behind the Iron Curtain in Poland. And he said, point blank, the communists said, we have to get rid of your history so you won't be tied to Poland or your history. No, you just will be tied to the present and to the present government, the communists. President Trump's going to lead the way to stand up a little bit on this executive order. And we all need, as Helen Marie Taylor said, to stand up even more for our country, for ourselves, for our history, for a brighter future. That's the point. So good for President Trump. I'll tell you more about that when we see the details of the executive order. All right. We got to run real quick. Thank you, Noah. As always, our technical director, Joanna, for her help. Go to phyllisschlafly.com to find out more about our founder and what she wrote there. And Helen Marie Taylor, who's the leader of our board. We'll be gone. We'll take a break. We'll be back tomorrow. It's not a break. We'll be back tomorrow night. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report.